the Women Changing the World podcast, a podcast on a mission to bring you some of the most amazing women I know who are doing incredible things to generally make the world a better place. From corporate sustainability to straight up magic and everything in between, you'll meet the real life humans who are birthing the new. I'm your host, Liz Best, and I'm here to amplify the stories and voices of women who are changing the world. Welcome to another new episode of the Women Changing the World podcast. Today, I am so excited to sit down with Allison Taylor. She is the Executive Director of Ethical Systems. She also teaches at NYU Stern School of Business. She's an author, and she's someone who wears many, many other hats. We talked about everything from women in power to the politicization of ESG and recommendations for posting prolifically on LinkedIn, plus how to get business to stop doing the wrong thing and why you should stop feeling like you need to accomplish anything by any age right now. Welcome to another new episode of the Women Changing the World podcast. I am so excited to be sitting down with Allison Taylor today. Allison, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Liz. It is so, so, so nice to be here and get an excuse to talk to you. Oh my goodness. I could not agree more. Um, I'm such a fan of you and I'm so excited for everyone who listens to get to meet you too. Um, So for anyone who doesn't already know all about you, would you mind briefly introducing yourself for our listeners? Absolutely. So I am the Executive Director of Ethical Systems, which is a sort of research collaboration based at NYU Stern School of Business. And we work on questions of ethical organizational culture, all dimensions of it. And I'm also a professor at Stern. I teach required ethics classes and elective sustainability classes. And I am writing a book for Harvard Business Review Press about how business can do the right thing in a turbulent world. And I have a few other hats because I have a lot of attention span issues, but that's enough for now. (laughs) Oh my goodness, I love it. Well, we will get into all of those things as well as the other hats. I totally feel you. wanting to touch many things at the same time. Um, Before we get into a little bit more of the different kinds of work you do in your day jobs, I have to ask, because this is the Women Changing the World podcast, and I like to start with the biggest question first. If you could change one thing about the world, what would your one thing be? This was the question I gave the most thought to over the weekend, and I decided that it would be that the world would properly value education. So my mom was a teacher, a lot of my family are teachers, 
And I think with education, you can change everything. Uh, I think if access to education should be a fundamental human right everywhere, I think if we had education and people were thinking and thoughtful, then a lot of other problems would be solved. So I think I would start there. Uh well, I love that. And also, I my mom is also a teacher, so <laughs> I so resonate with that. <laughs> Daughters of Teachers Unite. Um. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yeah, but did you, I'm sure you were brought up to believe you could do anything that you wanted. And I'm sure you were also brought up to believe in the value of an education. And those things both seem awesome to me, right? Totally. I mean, to be perfectly honest, uh, I was brought up to believe both of those things. It wasn't until I started working in corporate America that I first realized that perhaps I could not do anything that I wanted. Absolutely. I have the same same exact issue of just running into real life and being shocked. I also went to girls' schools. So uh, yeah, when I first then got into this very, very male-dominated world and the world of work, it was, uh, it was a shock to see how it really operated and perhaps I still haven't fully recovered (laughs) (laughs) totally I don't know that I have either (laughs) well we will definitely get into some of that Uh, and um, I would love if you wouldn't mind sharing with us a little bit more about ethical systems um, in particular and and the work I guess that's on your plate these days uh, through that lens Sure. So Ethical Systems was founded, I think, in around 2011 by Jonathan Haidt. He's a very famous social moral psychologist. He's written a a brilliant book on why uh, people disagree on politics and religion called The Righteous Mind. Uh, He's just written a big piece in The Atlantic that I'll send you for the show notes. Uh, But he is a a social psychologist and he had been teaching uh, as a psychology professor for many, many years. And then he moved to Stern in 2011 and he noticed that a lot of what corporations were doing on business ethics paid no attention to the academic research. And there's Mm -hmm. all this academic research, especially in psychology, about how people really think and behave and we completely ignore it in corporate life in favor of consulting solutions and decks and everyone kind of copies each other so he had this idea about getting the best ideas from academia into the business community. So his big vision is that we'll do experiments, um, you know, to proper academic standards and advance the field and advance culture. And we do a little bit of that work. Uh, We also, because of my background, now do a lot of work thinking about the whole role of the corporation in society and how that's changing. So that's changing a lot. Uh, There's a lot of employee activism. There's obviously a lot going on on diversity and inclusion. There's a lot going on uh, in the whole realm of sustainability uh, and of, in of uh, in terms of corporations getting involved with politics, all sorts of things. So we do a lot of thinking uh, about that as well and have a blog. Um, we have a podcast as well uh, and a network of academics. And they're all people that you would have heard of, like uh, Adam Grant is, is one of the, our network, for example, and he's everywhere, of course. so cool when I feel like you are someone who I know has been thinking about and writing about uh so many of these topics that are very much like front page front page news these days uh but before they were cool (laughs) and and really like so top of mind um so 
I'm like curious where to start. I'm like, I want to talk to you about risk and ESG. I want to talk to you about employee surveillance. I want to talk to you about political activism, but companies. But before we get into all of those things, um, would you mind taking a step back and telling us how you came to be where you are today? I know it's been an interesting journey. Sure, absolutely. So the first thing uh, I should say, when I went to India after college, I went around India, I was really obsessed with traveling. Uh, I did didn't achieve very much in my 20s. So I wanted to make this point because uh, I see a lot of young women worried that they should have achieved certain things by a certain time. And I had achieved almost nothing by the age of 30. So uh, <laughs> hopefully that's comforting. Um, I, uh, I, I, I'm exaggerating a little bit. I did a degree in international relations and I was a management consultant and I worked in publishing and I jumped around and I job hopped and I changed jobs every year and all that kind of thing. Uh, and then when I was uh, 29, I got a job working for a company called Control Risks and I became an investigator. And I mm. spent 12 years then investigating fraud and corruption and doing diligence. I was head of investigations, Middle East and Africa, first of all. So I traveled all over the place. I lived in Dubai. I traveled a lot in places like Nigeria and South Africa and Kenya and did big, big investigations. And it was super, super, super fun. Uh, it was an incredibly, incredibly male-dominated uh, organization. And then I moved uh, to New York uh, with this company, Control Risks, in 2011 and did the same job in the Americas. So Brazil, Colombia, Mexico, etc. And then two things happened. I, I started to notice that the facts of my investigations didn't seem to matter. I would watch, mm. you know, the, the head of sales override the head of compliance, or I'd watch people find a convenient scapegoat after a fraud. And it just seemed that the facts didn't matter and culture and leadership <laughs> mattered a lot more. So I got super curious about what I was seeing around me and I didn't know how to diagnose it. So um, I went back to college and studied organizational psychology and that was completely life changing. And the other thing that was happening around this time was I, I'd gotten very senior in this in this company uh, and I started to run into huge problems, kind of couldn't get anything done, was really struggling. And I'd been you know, this sort of overachiever until then. And it was very, 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 very hard for me. So I also needed an outlet. So both those things took me to Columbia and I studied organizational psychology. And then I ended up at BSR, which is where I met you. Uh, and I was uh, originally hired to be head of oil and gas and mining because I'd done all, all that sort of work in those uh, regions, as you can imagine. Uh, but I ended up running all the sustainability consulting and working with you. And I did that until uh, right before the pandemic, though I, I didn't know that. And then I decided to move to NYU. Honestly, Liz, I decided that by in about 2016, I decided that by the time I was 50, I was not going to go to an office at nine o'clock every morning <laughs> and report to someone uh, I didn't always agree with and be told what to do. I wanted to do my own thing and I wanted to be able to say what I thought. And I was willing to take some risks to do that. And it thankfully has worked out. But that was a big, big, big impetus. Yeah. So that takes us up till till now, really. Oh, wow. Uh, that is so cool. I thank you for I feel like I'm not sure how you jammed so much 
goodness, <laughs> just such a succinct uh, story. And I love that you shared that impetus with us. I mean, certainly I think back to 2016 and the thought of like, I don't want to go to an office ever again, such a revelation, whereas now that's <laughs> such a reality totally. for so many people. <laughs> totally. I mean, little did I know that the world was going to sort this out for me either way. But um, but still, I think I think the freedom to uh do what I want has been great I mean turns out daughter of a teacher maybe this will come to you later as well uh uh, it turns out teaching's awesome and I absolutely love it there's nothing uh I have been better at in my life um and it's uh it's a wonderful thing and I'm going to steal a mantra of yours now and I love particularly this this thing you say what if it's easy Mm. and I think it's a very uh or, or my read on it there's a loads of ways you could read it but uh my read on that is that sometimes we should play to our strengths and I think very often it can be hard to see your strengths because it's hard for you to see what you find easy that other people find difficult so you can often and especially if you're a, a certain type of uh, somewhat perfectionist hard driving type a uh, sort of woman, it can be hard to 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 go that route. But I, it's it's something that I would recommend to anyone listening as well to think about your strengths and maybe play to them a bit more. Mm, yes, <laughs> thank you so much for sharing that. And I mean, I could not agree more. And I, I'm sure there's many a listener who, like me, is a recovering perfectionist. <laughs> um, and I also just really want to underline, I love what you shared about, which while it sounds like you you did uh, underestimate everything that you accomplished in your 20s, uh, I also feel like uh, sitting here listening, I'm like, oh my gosh, it sounds like you did your 20s so well in that you tried so many things that I'm sure have informed where you are today and also had fun and adventures. I, I also see so many people and I've had some conversations not too long ago with people in their like early mid twenties who are putting so much pressure on themselves to like already have, you know, picked a path and gotten a promotion and won an award. And I mean, I totally, that was me in my twenties. And now I look back and I'm like, go backpack around for a while. (laughs) It'll all be there. (laughs) 100%. So I I talked to a lot of students and I mean, one, 100%, I see a lot of of undergrads who seem to have everything mapped out in a way I find somewhat terrifying um, <laughs> and I would I would uh, urge everybody to have fun uh, while you're young it's a very 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 good idea uh, otherwise you end up having a, a crazy life crisis when you're my age so uh, have fun uh, but I think <laughs> so I think uh, that's uh, one thing um, I think also Something that's really benefited me, but that is risky, is I've moved fields a lot, and I think uh, I'm I'm broad, not deep. I'm kind of an inch deep everywhere, but that enables me to make connections between things uh, that other people can't, who are more specialized. And I also think you can often take quite a basic insight from one place and put it in another, and people will be like, "Ooh, that's interesting." <laughs> so I, I, I think there's uh, there's room for for people uh, thinking more broadly uh, and taking more risks uh, in their careers. So I would I would certainly say 
don't worry about anything before you're 30 and and even then try not to worry and then uh you know it's it's good it's good to keep your options open and think about uh having a unique profile as someone that cuts across a lot of fields Mm, yes i think that's something that's so under i'm trying to think what the right word is but that's so maybe underappreciated as a career path i feel like so often we talk about like being like a really deep expert in one thing, but I think the ability to like, if you truly would like to be a strategist and an expert at like a holistic view, it requires you to like dabble in many, many different things. Absolutely. And it's the definition of creativity, right? Is seeing the link between two different ideas. So I think that has really benefited me. And I've had a, you know, I certainly haven't had a conventionally successful career. I just get poorer. I just kind of take pay cuts. But uh, I've had a very, I've had a very interesting and fun career. And part of it has been uh, changing direction a lot. So you're not stuck either ever. I, I, I think, you know, I, I, I think you never look back really on on your life and think anything other than I was so young, what on earth was I worrying about? So I will, I I hear that from 70 year old women that talk to me and they go, oh, you're a baby. What are you worrying about? So uh, that's all you ever think looking back. So that's that's reassuring. (laughs) Amazing. Well, I want to come back to some of these like ESG risks ethics topics. But before we go there, um, you are someone who I've looked up to for so long for so many reasons. And one of them is how you think about and advocate for women to have more power within organizations, which is something that I am a huge proponent of. It's something that people who listen to this podcast are all about. Um, I'm curious, so curious to get your take. Like, What are your thoughts on where we are today in terms of like actually getting women into positions of power and where we need to go? Sure. So this is a great question. Let's dive in a minute. I, I, we're obviously not where we need to be. There are horrific statistics about the amount of capital men control. Obviously, you know, there's more men called John in the S&P 500 (laughs) than there are women. You know, we all know the statistics. So that's all awful. I, have not been as furious about the end of Roe versus Wade. I can't think of anything I've ever been more furious about, honestly. Um, So that all relates to work, that relates to a lot of things. So that's that's all a big problem. Uh, But young women, I think, are in a different place. They're in a fantastic place. Uh, I think perhaps where I, I end up is that we should stop trying to adapt to the workplace and we need to start creating spaces of our own and making the world adapt to us. Mm. Uh, and so that's also what I think about the role of women in the workplace. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of a, a piece of sort of celebrity academic called Thomas Chamorro Prozuic, and he wrote a book called Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders? Um, and I <laughs> what a title. An article as well as an article of the same name. But the point he makes is right, we maybe need to. The issue is not, right, that we need to advocate for women and give them more confidence and lean in and get them to speak up for themselves. Like, I like that women 
on the whole are more thoughtful and think before they speak and like to know what they're talking about and don't bullshit like these are good qualities that we should encourage and not say well you can't self-promote like someone that doesn't know what they're talking about therefore you're not going to adapt here so what we actually need to stop doing is is over promoting mediocre incompetent men and if we stop doing that then everything else will fall out. So there's a there's a whole frame and there's a whole attitude of sort of fix the women. And I wish to reject that. I see the same conversation going on on diversity, equity and inclusion. I, I always have my students' jaws on the floor because I'm like, I'm not making the business case for this topic anymore. I'm not making the business case. What is the business case for there being more Men called John are CEOs in the S&P 500. Make the case to me. So we need Mm. to stop disempowering ourselves by uh, we're implicitly weakening our position by even participating in this discourse. We need to stop over promoting mediocre men, in my opinion. Uh, yes, preach. <laughs> well, I, I just like, I love this idea personally. It's like, I am, I do not want to ask for a seat at the table. Like, we're starting our own table. Like, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So this, I believe, having spent a long time trying to and failing, really, to adapt to, to organizations where um, the dominant frame was very, very different from me. Uh, I'm inclined to say, you know, you can have a you can have have a successful career in corporate America, and it is changing, and that gives me a lot of hope. Uh, but I think a lot of the time, certainly the solution for me has been to step off the chessboard and find a different game. Yes, although I feel like it can be so hard to see that when you're in it. It can. It absolutely can. And I, you know, I was in it for a very, very long time. And it certainly did my, you know, I was fine for a long time. I would have, if if you would ask me these questions 15 years ago, I would have given you incredibly different answers. I would have said, yes, it's a problem, but I have got away with it or some version <laughs> of that. Uh, I was not correct. I was not correct. <laughs> anyway totally well that's I feel like that's a only a hindsight I was just talking to a friend of mine this morning at the gym about how we wish we could shake ourselves from 10 years ago about all the ways that we like thought being a woman at work like we what we thought that meant and now we're like no <laughs> totally exactly no I really thought in I really thought that what you had to do was go and buy a load of horrible clothes and be told what to do and then maybe you would get some power to tell other people what to do which is a depressing view of work like I no wonder I wasn't excited about it um so I don't really think that is not what I see in the classroom that's not what I see people who are younger expect and think and want and I think it's mainly incredibly positive almost all of it is incredibly positive so there's it it, I I feel very hopeful about the future ah that's so great to hear I mean I feel like my experience like maybe had slightly more inspiring uh clothes but (laughs) 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 I I had a few female fashion icons to look up to um but I'm curious you mentioned that what you're seeing in the classroom is giving you a lot of cause for optimism um for anyone listening who does not currently have like a fired up I don't know, 18 to 24 year old in their life, what is uh, specifically giving you hope? Well, I like, 
uh, I like the way that young men seem to talk about women, and it gets only bad press. But I, 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 I read on, I read in all these papers where pe- about people's ethical dilemmas, right? So people write papers about sexual harassment and cheating and all these things, and so I get to read all these incredible papers about things that go on, and I read a lot of papers from young men who are, you know, working at Goldman sacks or whatever um who are it seems to me much more thoughtful about uh young women and their female colleagues and have female friends um and it seems to me much better than the men of my generation so i also want to make this point because i was saying stop over promoting incompetent men i'm i'm really just arguing for a genuine meritocracy i think young men uh I see a lot of young men having a hard time as well. And I think it seems to me that young women seem to have friends and more networks. And uh, at least by your 20s, that seem to be doing better than many of the young men I see in the classroom. But um, yeah, I like I like the feelings about women in the workplace. That seems very different. It seems very healthy. It seems very thoughtful. And then lots of brilliant people thinking in a thoughtful way about business. And this is stern, you know, it's a finance school it's not it's a mandatory class it's not like it's a bunch of uh people that we would normally talk to mm-hmm. and I find them thoughtful and smart and interesting and dynamic and inspiring yeah they're, they're great they're gonna be great oh, that's so exciting to hear um I feel like yeah time is certainly on our side <laughs> for as far as yeah. a new way of working goes yeah, and, and uh, there's an amazing book called The Honor Code, which is about moral revolutions. And it, it makes the point, you know, that people make the case for change. It has great, great examples, like a foot binding in China, which went on for six centuries. And then it all changed in the space of, of six years, even though people had been making the case against foot binding for centuries. And so I do think we're in the middle of this social uh, upheaval and transformation Um and I hope, I just hope that things like the end of, of Roe versus Wade are just sort of a galvanizing force that are going to make the backlash stronger and hasten the end of some old paradigms. That's what I hope. Oh, my goodness. I so, so hope for that. I, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, I'll never forget. I was in a yoga class uh, very shortly after Trump was inaugurated and I was speaking to someone who just come back from Standing Rock and she told me that she was like, you know, this country is about to have to like really do some deep shadow work in the coming years. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that at that moment in time, I ever could have imagined all the things that would unfold uh, yes. in the past five, I guess, five years. Um but I'm like, well, if if nothing else, hopefully it is waking us up to make some serious change. I think the conversation has transformed. I think the space for debate has transformed. Uh, I think, let's hope, let's hope. There's a, you know, we could make a pessimistic case, but let's not do that because part of it is, is, that we need to be part of this change. So I think there's a lot there's a there's a lot going on that is uh very hopeful and I do think uh some of it at least will come to fruition. 
Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) Fingers crossed. And also I agree. (laughs) Um, Well, I feel like one of the things that's been really interesting that's been happening in the past year or so is how political ESG, which I feel like was not even the term of art (laughs) a couple years ago, but how political it has gotten. Um, What is your take on why this has gotten so political and how do you think that's going to impact practitioners? Oh, sure. Well, we can see, I mean, let's start with the easy question. We can see the the trouble that practitioners are running into uh, already because um, it's becoming very, very difficult to figure out when to speak up, when to stand down. Uh, lots of issues around political spending, obviously lots of issues around retaliation, lots of uh, issues to do with women's reproductive rights, all sorts of things. Uh, so there's a sort of easy answer and a more complicated answer, I think. Um, I think the easy answer is that everything in America is incredibly polarised and it's sort of like a dominant logic. It's sort of like a magnet, you know, attracting everything to one pole or the other. It really seems that every conversation becomes polarised. Everything everything sort of follows that logic in America today. So ESG is no exception. Um, And I think we have seen, um, you know, uh, issues like climate change becoming more aligned with progressive politics. And so it makes a very good uh, way to make noise uh, for one of our political parties. I think the more complicated answer, though, is that we've had a bit of a myth um, and this is a, an ESG myth more than a sustainability myth, but the myth of ESG, right, is that it's all a win-win. Mm. There's no, it's a false dichotomy between stakeholder interest and shareholder value, if you think about the long term. Um, and so really ESG is just good management and it's an objective set of performance metrics. Now, I think all of that's pretty much wrong. I think, (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately, uh, I think if you're going to start talking about the role of business in society and what social responsibility looks like, you have to, by definition, consider the political landscape. You have to be making a statement about the limits of what corporations should and shouldn't be responsible for. So I actually think as many advocates of ESG and sustainability have sort of denied this as opponents. I think that I think the idea inherently has social, political, economic um, components. It has it's 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 its breadth is the point. And so I think it's it's a bit disingenuous to say, well, this is just good practice and it's just something operational and it's not political because quite clearly it quickly does become political. So I think it's I think it's not super easy, but it is super interesting. Totally. Well, and I think, you know, to your point as to like why it becomes so political is because I think it's like fundamentally this question of what is the role of business in our society? There are exactly. many perspectives on that. Exactly. And so you'll tend to hear sustainability people who I love and work with, but sort of saying it's not political, it's just the right thing to do. But that's a political position. You're making a you're making a statement with that position that about what you believe a corporation should be responsible for. Um, I mean, I also I also would reject the kind of a Republican idea that um, 
that capitalism is 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 not political because shareholder value is also making a political statement mm-hmm. it's a it's a fantasy right about the role of business in society that says it's divorced from politics it says there are all these sharp lines that you can draw which don't in reality exist so everyone's talking politics and denying it is my view. <laughs> <laughs> i love it you heard it here first everyone's talking politics and denying it <laughs> Um, Well, I am curious because I feel like one of the things that you mentioned earlier and that I know you've worked a ton on throughout the course of your career is this question of like what what actually drives ethics within organizations and specifically corporations and like how do you get people like individuals to actually do the right thing in an organizational context? And I know this is like such a huge question. Um, And it's also, I mean, it is inherently tied to ESG because, you know, ideally, and and we've both read, I'm sure a million times the line in in a report that says it's everyone's job. (laughs) Right, 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 right. But how do you actually incentivize good behavior um, in, in a business, in an organization? So I think speaking up on your own is always going to be incredibly difficult. There are experiments, there's a famous ash experiment where people go along with the crowd um, because it's 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 very, very difficult. And that's it's difficult for a reason. Uh, speaking up is a very quick way to ruin your career. People do get scapegoaters. Uh, it is very often something that's done by people who are for whatever reason, have some form of outsider status. I don't think it is a coincidence at all that all the recent tech whistleblowers have been women, or almost all. Uh, Also, there were a lot of whistleblowers in the early 2000s who were all women in very male-dominated organizations. So I think there's something, there's a lot more to be said about this, obviously, but there's something about being an outsider that makes you both incredibly powerful because you can see things uh, that other people can't see, but also incredibly vulnerable. So I think that's always difficult. That's not going to change. It's not solved by whistleblowing lines, but something is changing in organizations. And this is another, I guess we've got, we're coming up with another reason to be hopeful, but but employee voice has completely transformed in the past five years. Uh, There are all these now whistleblowing platforms where you can find out if someone else is also raising allegations about the creepy manager and then leaking is yeah and then there's one called vault um and it's women owned i'll hook you up if you like um uh there's uh, and there's ones that try and kind of get you to use your speaking up muscles by reporting good things but then leaking is the new whistleblowing right so at nike you had all those women getting together and basically you know acting collectively and social media and things like slack um have completely enabled that so after george floyd's murder for example every company in america apparently felt obliged to have a black square on instagram and saying how much they care and then there were lots of employees organized organizing and saying on on social media, no, this is what it's like to work here and this is the problem. So essentially, confidentiality is dead um, and there's much, much more bottom-up power. And I think that is separate from the labor market. I think the weaponization of information is completely profound. And then I look again at the Gen Z, I look at the undergrads and they are 
unbelievably more sophisticated even the millennials on these topics so i don't think companies know what's going to hit them um and i think all of this makes the isolation and makes the courage needed a little easier um and i do think over time it will transform power and management in organizations and a combination of remote work and so on um but there's lots of things going on uh, with countervailing trends at the moment companies are desperately trying to introduce surveillance and then mm-hmm. i'm also getting the impression control what their employees are saying on social media um but it's not really at the end of the day yeah yeah even give uh give payments for being kind of representative certainly obsessively tracking so i think this is all a kind of emerging conversation oh that's so interesting because i mean i was aware of the surveillance piece and I feel like at least my take, which granted I live in my own very specific bubble, but I feel like when I first started my career, I very much felt like when I spoke publicly, partially because of what I do and did and and partially just because I have historically been a rule follower, um, I needed to be very thoughtful about what I said, um, you know, in terms of even even with the like Twitter bio, like opinions are my own, knowing that I was like to some extent representing my organization. And I feel like in a lot of ways, I've seen people really over the past, I'd say maybe five to eight or so years, really start to have an opportunity to own their voices outside of their roles um, because of the internet, because there is a platform to do so. Um, So that's really interesting to hear that you're feeling like you're seeing like some subversion of that for employees. Yeah, I think I think corporations, well, you know, it's sort of like you can handle this well. I think uh, good leaders would see all this as employee voice as an asset and would not try and control it and would see it as um, a sign that, you know, it's a sign that you can stop problems before they start. It's a sign that you can make better decisions. It's an opportunity to be a different kind of leader. I mean, one thing we know, and, and I don't think this is gender based, but but power numbs you to what's going on around you to some extent. So everybody needs that. Everybody needs uh, voices and corrections from people that see things differently. And I think all that is is kind of changing. And I like I, I I interviewed a woman called Jennifer Say. She's been a lot in the press, so people may have heard. She was supposed to be in line to be the next CEO at Levi's, and she got very upset about school closures in San Francisco, and started tweeting a lot about it. Uh, and she, the way she tells it, see, um, Levi's was very very upset about this, and would kind of haul her in front of corporate affairs every week and basically tell her to stop and she felt she should you know she felt this was nothing to do with her job and she completely you know she was had done all this branding work for Levi's she couldn't have been more you know team Levi's mm-hmm. um but she just really resented this and I it, it's I think it's a really interesting topic because we have this idea that we should bring our whole selves to work and 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 all these kind of ideas which come from a great place right it, it, it's certainly part of uh being able to be a leader and be ethical being able to use your voice so i i i appreciate where it's coming from but at the same time i think maybe we expect too much of corporations corporations can't reflect all our values so maybe what we need is uh going back to a little bit more separation between work and life. And then to your point, having the space, having the voice, having the freedom to support and do uh, what you want. And I think I would rather that than corporations trying to control what employees are doing and saying in their spare time. 
Mm. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, it's a tricky topic, right? It really is. And I feel like it's one of those things, too, that without, like, a formal, like, formally agreed upon line, everything ends up in a weird gray area that probably doesn't serve anyone. Exactly. So I think I would tend to say, you know, obviously, if someone's treating racist tweets, fire them. Absolutely. But within reason, I I think free speech and pluralism might be a better way to deal with our moment than what we seem to be doing, which is doubling down on this idea that corporations um, should be speaking up on everything uh, going. Mm, Definitely. Um, Well, on the topic of voice and speaking up, um, I feel like you are someone who, like, you've been writing and speaking and thinking about the sustainability and the impact space for years, um, and you're prolific. (laughs) I know you recently officially became a leading voice on LinkedIn, which is so cool to see you recognized for all of your work. Um, Would you be willing to share some of your secrets on how... Like, how do you do what you do? (laughs) Oh, sure. Well, thank you, Liz. Sure. Well, uh, let me start, okay, by saying it took me 16 years to get from no followers to 10,000 followers on LinkedIn and eight months to get from 10,000 to 20,000. So the very short answer is put in the work over a long time. Um, It doesn't kind of, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, So what I do now, I post most mornings, either something I've seen before, or honestly, I wake up and I have coffee and I get in a rage about something and I just, (laughs) I just go on and I, I, I post, um, I have found that the more I think about the audience, the more I try and craft to an audience, the worse it does. It is better if I just react with what I genuinely think. I don't spend a lot of time fussing about the wording because I'd be there all day and I need this to be quick. And I genuinely want to know what people think. So I think another thing that has happened is that over the years, I have a a community of people I genuinely want to hear from. And actually I'm getting worried that's now getting diluted. Um, And so I started, um, I started really posting more on LinkedIn in the last eight months. And that's what sort of happened because I was writing this book and I would, I'm usually sort of testing an idea or I'm reacting to something or I'm just seeing. And usually by the end of the day, there'll be awesome ideas and links and articles and papers and so on in the comments. So it's sort of purely selfish. (laughs) Um, But then, but then I think, so I think, uh, you know, comment a lot, interact a lot, post every day, don't worry about it being perfect. You can kind of fix it during the day. And then uh, if it's something you genuinely think and genuinely want to know the answer, I think you will gradually get a, a community and then post on other people's, be generous, you know, make connections, all that sort of obvious stuff. But I don't think I'm doing anything other than that, showing up regularly and saying what I really think. The other huge advantage I have is that I'm not tied to an organization. And so I can, other than NYU, which doesn't mind, so I can say what I really think. So a lot of people, of course, we were both at BSR, we could say what we thought as long as it was nice. I don't have a lot of nice things. <laughs> yes, <say. laughs> I remember having to edit to that, which was a challenge at times. Right. So, uh, and before that, I wasn't allowed to say anything. So I suppose that's the other thing. How important is it 
to you to be able to say what you think. And and for me, that was worth making career decisions around. So I have a, so in summary, I have a huge in, in, inbuilt advantage because of that. This was a long, 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 long road. It was not some, I don't have any how to go viral advice. Uh, <laughs> but what seems to work is... Uh, showing up regularly and connecting and being part of the conversation and, and really wanting to know. So that's what I would advise. Spend more time on that than, than making sure it, it sounds great. Just, mm. just put it out there and see. It doesn't have to be perfect. Yes, I love so much of what you shared. And the two things I really want to underline are like this, like there's no, I mean, I'm sure that it exists in the world. I don't believe in absolutes, but like there's no such thing as overnight success. Like this idea that it took six years and then eight months. And I think so many people want to focus on the eight months, Uh, but 16 years is really the story, not the last eight months. Um, Exactly, exactly. and, And then I think truly, truly sharing like your actual thoughts in a way that's inviting a conversation. And that's not like, here's what I think the like mic drop. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. And and I must say, uh, and I hope you'll run this, even though it's your podcast, I think you're very good at doing that as well. I think you are in a different realm and a different space. I think you're doing the same thing or I, I, I recognize it in you. And I, I think it's extremely successful for the same reasons. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. I'm still working on receiving compliments. <laughs> oh, sure. I this so whole pre- thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I feel like it's like, so, um, I think I learned as a survival mechanism many years ago to like re- accept and then like deflect or turn it back around. So I'm just going to receive that and say, thank you. <laughs> Perfect. Um, Well, you mentioned your book coming out soon-ish on how business can do the right thing in a turbulent world. And of course, I want to ask a million questions. Um, But the the first uh, two that I want to start with are, one, how can business do the right thing? Or perhaps, how can business stop doing the wrong things? (laughs) And I'll save the second question for a minute from now. Yeah, the the second question's a better one because in fact my my thesis, my frame is that what we call uh business ethics, what we name business ethics and I'm going to include obviously sustainability, uh ethics and compliance and a lot of HR has got absolutely nothing to do with ethics uh, and is rather, it's a defense mechanism. Think of it like a moat or a shield or a deflection tool around the company. So part of it's about litigation and deflecting the lawyers and we tick the boxes and then we get lower penalties and bad apples and blah, blah, blah. And it's all nonsense. That's not how it works. People don't wake up one day and say, today is the day I'm going to pay a bribe. It's just not (laughs) how it works. Um, And then there's sustainability and my favorite cynics definition of sustainability is that it's the paramilitary wing of the marketing department so uh so a lot of it of course is writing the report and doing the pictures um uh and so on and it's hard to blame companies for that but it has the impact of disempowering sustainability leaders it traps us in this sort of spiral of suspicion and messaging and i think we have this fantasy that if we just get enough information enough transparency we'll know what's going on and we'll be able to judge the good from the bad Mm. um and but a corporation all of that 
involves treating the corporation as a singular person with a singular set of interests. Um, and that's the frame and metaphor we use. Um, but in, in fact, a corporation's not any of those things. It's a system. And so we can't see a lot of things that are going on because we treat it like this precious jewel that needs protecting at all costs with all these defense mechanisms. And it's in fact a system that relies on other systems to survive. And if we can just see that, we would find a lot of things a lot easier. Um, I think as well, we have this fantasy about good and bad companies, you know. So as you will know, Liz, uh, you, you've had an interesting uh, interesting uh, experience in this space. In fact, um, a lot of the, the companies that get get the most flack, um, often a best practice. So I want a great human rights person. I would start with a mining company. Okay. The companies that have thought most deeply about supply chains are the companies that get the most flack on those issues, apparel and fouge. But because we've got this idea that um, there's such a thing as a good company, we've got this gotcha mindset, we can't actually learn from each other and we can't learn in real time and we can't have the conversations we need to have. So I get messages and I'm certain you must have these conversations as well. Um, you know, if I could just share what I really think, if I just didn't have to deal with the press and the ratings, I spoke to someone in Coco Human Rights last week who was saying this, you know, it's just the press and it's just all these misunderstandings and we have to spend so much money telling our story and on the messaging, we don't have any budget or appetite to solve the problems. Totally. So that's, that's what part of what I'm trying to argue. Uh, well, it's so important. And I feel like, I mean, I, I mean, I think reporting is a, is an important thing for many reasons. However, it, when someone, you have one person or a small team that's focused on this huge universe of issues and they're spending half the year working on a report <laughs> that only exactly. leaves half the year to actually do a thing. Uh, exactly. And it, it creates a very, uh, it creates a cycle that's not, I think, what we're ultimately trying to incentivize in this space. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, interesting times. But again, I think, um, you know, there's lots of amazing people now getting more power and getting more budget and getting more influence. And these issues have never been more important. So I, I, you know, I encourage everyone to keep fighting the good fight. But I think I think we need to have a somewhat different conversation and different expectations in order to move the needle. Maybe we need to focus on companies being good ish, uh, not, <laughs> not, not perfect. Uh, yes, yeah, so I feel like so much of so much of what's been the conversations that have been happening in my world over the past week and a half or so are around this idea of like, like what about instead of everything being perfect like we're like what if things are medium what if instead of like working the hardest and giving your best effort you give like your medium effort and I think that like an, a medium approach to like how can we like give a medium effort to reporting and then maybe save yeah. our hard effort for the actual stuff um or go for good ish I think there's a lot of there's a lot of um juice there Absolutely. And I think, I mean, also strategically, right, you know, I think ESG perpetuates this idea, you can solve 40 things. And I think the most successful companies tend to be very, very, very focused. 
because in any real life organization, you're not really pushing ambitiously on 40 goals. I mean, you're just not. So I think I would rather see, you know, a company really taking its diversity goals seriously and trying to do something properly across the whole business, not just hiring ahead of diversity and calling it a day. And and I think you can only do that if you, if you focus on a few things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wish I remembered where I first heard or read this, that the, the word priority use like was singular it was just the one (laughs) exactly now we have so many um well I'm curious to hear to the extent you're willing to share what has the book creation process looked like for you so far I know writing a book is no small undertaking it's been super tough. Uh, I'm not going to lie. Uh, I, I feel unqualified to give advice since I'm still in the middle of it. But um, I've done about 100 interviews. Um, I have uh, I have a lot of words on the page. Uh, it seems that kind of like LinkedIn, doing it every day a little bit and making yourself do it and being in a rhythm, you do get breakthroughs sometimes. But I'm a year in and it still very much depends what day you catch me. It is a big reason I spend so much time on LinkedIn and I genuinely do want ideas and thoughts and comments and critiques and all sorts of things. So uh, social media, contrary to popular opinion, is is, is currently keeping me sane. Not (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. And when and if you don't know yet, that's totally fine, too. But do you have an approximate idea of when you're hoping it will be out in the world? I hope next year it may not be. I'm going to try and get it done. I'm going to draft to my editor by Thanksgiving, otherwise Christmas. So I'm certainly halfway through at least getting the first draft in. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that I I would recommend this to anyone yet as a as a thing. But uh, if I survive, I'll come back on your podcast in three years and tell you how great it was. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I cannot wait. <laughs> Maybe sooner than then, right? 2024. You'll be like, wow, remember yeah. when I was writing every morning? Yeah. Um, yeah. I love it. Well, uh, one of my favorite questions to ask people on the podcast is if they could give their younger selves advice. I know you already had a little bit of uh, advice. We've had lots of advice that I think has been just gold on the podcast. But is there anything you wish you could tell younger Allison? I mean, stop obsessing about your weight and your love life is I think I would, I would say if I had 10 <laughs> seconds. Um, but um, I think, yeah, stop being obsessed with what you are supposed to have done by when. Mm. Forget it. Forget it all. It's all <laughs> absolutely the most, the biggest waste of time. Don't worry about, spend no more time thinking about what you're supposed to have done by when. Uh, yes. (laughs) Well, and in a similar vein, one of my favorite things to ask about on the podcast is someone who is surrounded by a sea of handwritten inspirational post-it notes. Um, I aspire to one day get like a deck of post-it notes printed with all of the messages from the podcast guests that, that we've heard so far. Um, if you could write something, or if you're looking at a post-it note yourself right now, that's like just a note to self. Uh, from Allison Taylor, what would you want to put on your post-it note? 
Uh, I'm going to paraphrase George Bernard Shaw, who said, the reasonable woman adapts herself to the world, the unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to herself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable woman. Ah, you just gave me the chills. I love that. (laughs) And a moment of being nervous, like, where is this going? (laughs) Um, It's obviously George Bernard Shaw wrote it with man, the reasonable man. But I, uh, of course, have made it the unreasonable woman. Ah, so fun. Cheers to unreasonable women. Absolutely. Absolutely. I had to drink with someone uh, at the weekend uh, who I hadn't seen in a very long time. And he was like, well, yeah, you're Alison. You're a very difficult woman. And I was like, yes, I am. Uh, And I was proud. Uh, Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Um, Well, I could talk to you for hours. um, And I also want to be respectful of your time. Uh, so before we wrap up, would love to know for everyone who's listening and who is as big a fan of yours as I am, where is the best place for people to find, follow, keep in touch with you, keep tabs on your book release? Uh, LinkedIn is the best place to find me. Uh, you'll find me very easily. Um, I'm also on Twitter. I tweet things I'm meaning to read later and little comments far more rapidly uh, at follow Alison T. That's Alison with one L. Um, But you can sign up to the Ethical Systems newsletter. I will always respond to notes from people that want to have a proper conversation with me or have something to share. I, I, I genuinely get a huge kick out of hearing from everybody. So be in touch. Ah, Amazing. Well, we'll definitely, I feel like there's so many links for us to include in the show notes, but we'll be sure to include links to all of those things here for people who want to keep in touch. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Women Changing the World podcast. Please rate and review the Women Changing the World podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, and don't forget to subscribe for future episodes. You can find me on Instagram. My handle is liz.best, that's L-A-S dot B-E-S-T, or you can find me on LinkedIn by searching my name, Liz Best. Join my mail list by visiting elizabethbest.com slash monthly meditation, and you'll receive all the latest updates on events, retreats, and opportunities to work with me plus a monthly love note from my heart to your inbox. I am so excited to keep in touch and I'll see you in the next episode.